They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Baby, come back. Bye, 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 bye. Bye, 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 bye. I must admit I was a clone to be messing around. But that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Come back. Bye, 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 bye. Hey, how you doing, Jody Raceford? I'm all right, David Hellard. You came in first there. Ooh, I oh, yeah. am, I, am I getting out of place? No, how dare you? How, <laughs> dare, how dare you? Oop-a-doo. Um, apologies. I mean, if, if you'd like to give it another go. No, let's not. Okay. okay. Well, how, how was this? It sounds as, as about a half arse as it could possibly get. A second <laughs> running of it isn't going to sound any better. Yeah, that's true. Well, listen, welcome to Bad Boy Running, listeners. I don't think we've welcomed you to Bad Boy Running for about, <laughs> about five episodes now, <laughs> from what I recall. Because I just. This is the way we do it. If we have someone on who we think there's going to be a huge portion of their audience coming, we'll do a proper introduction because <laughs> we're thinking. These people are going to have no idea what's going on. We're just assuming that everyone else is just piles in, you know, willy-nilly uh, every other episode. Yeah, indeed. But we, we're we not sure. Oh, no, we do know who we're introing with this one, don't we? we um, oh, let's uh, not say it, though, just in case. Just in, just case, in case, case you get it wrong again. We've got, we're doing three intros in a row, listeners. So um, if we feel tired by so three episodes. So it's all the same stuff we can say in different ways. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> but actually... It just seems like the last six weeks, eight weeks, maybe even three months, it's been like back to back to back to back stories and changes and controversies in running. And and it's all stuff that's backed up things that you've either predicted or, <laughs> or we've talked about saying someone needs to deal with this. It makes us look incredibly... Uh, like ahead of the curve and it is pure accident yeah, the thing is you say that but because of the way we record we probably think we're ahead of the curve <laughs> by the time by the time these episodes are published we're probably still late and everyone's like oh he's still droning on about this oh no no oh, oh yeah the oh, thing is i don't i i'm I'm not interested in what happens when it gets published that to me to me that this recording <laughs> is essentially us publishing it oh it's what yeah. is it it's, it's all about Christmas. now. It's probably Christmas now, anyway, for you, yeah. for us. It's for us. It's weeks before Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you're still wondering what to buy us for Christmas, it's too late. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> too late. Is it too late? Maybe probably it's not. not too late. What do you want for Christmas, actually? Have you, have you thought about what you want? Well, Briggs is in the room with me, so um, I wasn't smiling. Sort of a particularly serious one, but but oh, <laughs> but maybe this is the opportunity. Oh, what would I want for Christmas? Hmm. Well, if to be it's honest, related, if it's running related, I uh, we're ending this right now. I, I'm going to make sure this is this is. I say this quite loudly so she definitely hears. You know, I'm going to be getting all that I've ever wanted next year anyway. <laughs> She's giving the background. We get married. We get married. Whoop whoop whoop. Who needs more than that? It's going to be amazing. How about yourself? Um. I I don't I haven't really thought. The thing is, I've got a, I've got my birthday before Christmas, so I don't really think about Christmas. Oh, it's the big birthday, is it? Big big four uh, Well, no, I've had that already. But wow, you're you're going to be my age. Yeah, I'm going to be I'm going to be as old as you. Well, so we're in octanar- 
Octanarian podcast. <laughs> a combined age of 82 on the 4th of December. <laughs> we need to get Ali back. I think, yeah, Ali. Hey, the thing is, at 82, we've got a pretty good chance of beating some world records. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah. And um, the good thing is, I don't think the people in their 80s are up on their, uh, like, which Nikes to wear, how to EPO <laughs> properly. You know, we can, they're probably still drinking strychnine or something because they, they knew that, that happened in the first marathon. <laughs> so we should do well. I don't know. I don't know why you think adding Ali into that is going to reduce anything because if we add Ali into that. She's not, she's not negative negative 40 years old she can be very negative she's gonna be very <laughs> negative when she gets to 40 that is for sure that is something we can guarantee but um she's a, she? a long way off that i have no idea how old Ellie is but i'd imagine quite a way to go still yeah really oh, i thought yeah. she was kind of like same age as us <laughs> oh ouch <laughs> ouch okay i'm not i'm not getting into that but um talking about older ladies Oh, I don't know what we where are we going with this one. Have you seen the well, um, just just compared to compared to Ali? Have Have you seen Last Woman Standing yet? The film, no, the no. the film that I basically kind of put my neck on the line, forwarded to you ahead of time, and then got an email saying, "Please, please do not share this." Any like, <laughs> no, no, don't worry. If you forwarded it to me, I won't have watched it. <laughs> So, do better. If you've not signed up already, it's come out now. But I think we're recording Monday, and it's either tomorrow or next Tuesday is the the the, the worldwide premiere, online premiere, the Last Woman Standing. So, Innovative put together a video of Nikki Spinks going to Barclay Marathons, and it's um yeah, I think we're going to try and show it at the running show if we can. But um yeah, it's a shame you haven't watched it because oh, I didn't, I didn't know that was about that. Well, yeah. I, I think it's, I still, even from like when I was a journalist, I still get loads of emails and stuff that say embargoed. I'm like, I didn't even want to watch the damn thing. You're telling me to embargo something that I didn't even want to watch in the first place. So I kind of, it kind of passes over me. And then and it, less, and it always feels like it's a, like a reverse psychology thing playing on it. Oh, guys, just don't share the, whatever you do, don't share this. This is going to be crazy. Do not share this. Are you sure we're not being offered a um, a soft drink contract, kind of 90s soft drink contract for the drink in the Congo? Have you been misreading these? <laughs> Could be a big sponsorship deal coming. Sorry if you're not British no, no, and you're not old, you won't understand that at all. But um... <laughs> yeah. so um... That's, that was so esoteric. I, if anyone understood that, or anyone got that. You're, but, we're, showing, we're showing our age there, like oh. showing how much, showing our age and how much TV we watched. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I st- well, I've, I've probably watched that video back in the last five years anyway. But um, yeah, what would you th- what do you think the? So it's forty minutes long. Yeah. What do you reckon it'd be like? Innovate video. Nicky Spinks against Barclays. Well, so I don't understand. Mm. Um, they're not allowed to film on the course, are they? <laughs> so. It's just, it must just be footage of them in the, uh, in the, what's it called? The, the area where they basically pop their blisters and have a rest. So this, this is the issue. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good film and it's, it's well done. Um, and it's, it's something you is it, always, is it, fill, is it filled with backstory? That's the, that's the only way that you, you turn <laughs> it into something that's, that's interesting. There's a, there's a little bit of that, but actually 
they they probably don't big up Nicky as much as they could because they don't go into extensively into what does it mean to do a double Bob Graham, let alone really fully explaining what Bob Graham is. But um, yeah, it's it's one of those films where it's so up to luck what it's going to be like as a as a cinematographer, and so Nicky goes out there and. Firstly, um, she becomes best mates with a uh, friend of the podcast, Stephanie Case. Oh, yeah. And so they start running around together, which is kind of awkward when your, your show was going to be called Last Woman. <laughs> its entire USP was based on the fact that there was a single woman on their own. And now yeah. there's two together. Yeah, that, is, that does undo the, uh, the USP somewhat. So, so not only was that, I guess, a bit of an issue, but then also, as you say, well, I mean, the, the, one of the troubles is that Barclay now has it's been rinsed to death, really, in terms of the, the kind of anecdotal stories, the quirkiness. Yeah. And I, I think most people who watch this, and in fact, I'd go up to say high 90s percentage of people that watch this would have watched the Barclay documentaries because I, I doubt you'd know who Nicky was if you weren't you know, in, involved in that seen already really uh, maybe i'm doing a disservice there um but uh but then they they then go to film and as you say they can film the start and there's there's the water point i believe they're allowed to film at the top i can't remember the name oh, of the yeah, ridge, yeah. quite a famous ridge where they come to get water and so they film there and um and also something that doesn't do the film any favors is that in their infinite wisdom um, Nikki and Stephanie both decided they were actually going to do sensible pacing. So instead of going out like everyone else, where well, the oh no, I mean they're they're still they're still putting a shift on. But compared to if you think most people who finish Barclays do between eight and nine hours for their first uh, twenty miler. And so, and then, you know, you've got 12 hours on average. So that's significantly faster because you know at night it's going to get worse. You know you're going to tire anyway. Um, but they've gone out to try and be fairly conservative and actually pace it. I'm not sure if they're pacing for to try and finish it or whether they're just thinking this is the best pacing decision to get as far as we can. But then the weather sets in on lap two when no one's really around. They then go out and that's the last you see of them. So in essence, it's this really short documentary that is, they've done the best of what they can do. (laughs) It's about two people disappearing into the woods. Yeah, pretty much. And then it's like, well, the, the weather came in. Here's some, some, pictures of weather being terrible and so they basically made Blair Witch <laughs> that's, right. that's right and Nikki's never been seen again <laughs> so um it's it's such a shame because if the conditions had been and, and that's the thing about Barclays it's such potluck on on the weather and the weather was just seemed absolutely schizophrenic this year this year so and it's such a shame. It's, it's definitely still worth watching. And the good thing is you can sign up for free. Um, we've put the link, I think, in the Facebook group. We'll put it out. Well, I say we'll put it out. We put this this episode out, but we'll probably forget. So it's somewhere in the so Facebook. Remind group. us, yeah. Right. If you listen to this and go back to the thing, remind us. We put it. Um, the, I, the main problem I have with um, filming any ultras, uh, any kind of ultra, is that it, it's just incredibly boring. 
I mean, like there was, if you watch Game Changers, there was um, probably about three or four minutes dedicated to talking about Scott Jurek doing the um, Appalachian Trail. Um, and that was only a few minutes, and that was that, that was, that was the pretty boring, boring, most boring like four minutes of, <laughs> of that entire thing. It, it's just watching people run, especially ultra runners, is is just not a spectator sport. Um, yeah. But then you add on to that the fact that you've almost picked the most unfilmable race that you can imagine, <laughs> and I just it, all all you really have with Barkley is Laz. And the stories. <laughs> and the back, I mean, that's it, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's essentially what the, the Barclay Marathon's documentary was. It's Laz telling the stories. And, yeah. and it's kind of, it's, you can't gain anything. You don't gain anything from it. And that's, of course, you're talking about the specific. I mean, like, even um, I've watched documentaries on uh, Badwater, mm. Spartathlon, uh, even things like UTMB and stuff like that. And they're all boring as well. They're all just mm. like, just incredibly boring. Like, again, uh, different attempts at the Appalachian Trail. You know, if it's 40 minutes, you're like, God, how have you stretched this out to 40 minutes? It's just, it's, it, it's just think, one of those, think, one of those things that's just not, it's just really hard to capture on film that makes it interesting in any way. So do you think we should, we should make one where one of us is like switching their shoes for like one full of custard or like it's almost a, you've been framed ultra where someone's doing this life changing event where you just keep on like, you're probably bored now. So what we've done is there's a, there's a nest of bees in his back when he goes in to get his head torch. <laughs> it's basically, um, uh, oh no, what's that? What's that thing called with all the, uh, all that, the friends? The nuts, three laps. No. <laughs> that's, that's not funny. Um, it's, um, what are they if, the listen, if you're new, if you're new and you've no, before we start, if you're new and you haven't watched Jody's attempt at the four laps of nuts, we've not talked about obstacle racing at all recently. Find that, watch it. That is an an unbelievable documentary by Pete Race, uh, Pete Reese about Jody, and maybe maybe not reaching greatness. I think reaching greatness either way. It, but. it was it 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 was a it was a journey there, um, and actually he did really really well because he made that seem as though. That was much more interesting than it actually was. Yeah, he um, really did. Yeah, he did a really good job with that. Um, but it's still a twat. Uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, what were you going to say? Um, no, it's. Um, have you ever seen the film adaptation? It's no. when Nicholas Page. Uh, Nicholas Page. <laughs> Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage plays um, uh, a twin twin brother. Plus, Ch- it's written by Charlie Kaufman. So he plays both parts. He plays, he plays Charlie Kaufman and oh. Charlie Kaufman's imaginary twin brother. So it's like Double Impact. It's like <laughs> Double Impact. <laughs> Is it that good? I don't think anyone has ever ever compared anything to Double Impact. <laughs> I tried to make Breezy watch it. She wasn't up for that one. um, So what happens in it? It's an adaptation. It's an adaptation. Well, well, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's one of these like really self-aware things. But what happens is, is that he's writing a, it's a screenplay about a guy trying to write a screenplay. And it's very self-aware. It's, you know, it's like Spike Jones, uh, Charlie Kaufman. It's really, really brilliant, but very, very Nicolas Cage. Um, but what it does, it changes genre at various points. So, like, one is a drama, and then it turns into a thrill. I think that is how you need to do a race. You basically film a race over an hour and a half, and, like, ev- 
every 30 minutes some kind of dynamic changes like a, a new villain is introduced well, or someone gets killed and then they start chasing him down the trail and he's then literally running for his life <laughs> the problem is with all of these is that they have to try and create some sort of dramatic tent like any sports mm. documentary has to create some kind of dramatic tension and yeah. it's normally fake that's the other thing that's the there's, worst part about it there's gonna like, be a twist or tension yeah. or like redemption um, did you watch, uh, I think it was one called The Running the Sahara. It was about three guys that ran across the Sahara together. Mm. And Yes, that was tension, though. Yeah, but they tr- yeah I, but I think it was totally, I think it was completely contrived. They, they tried to make out that one of the blokes was going to be a bit of a dick and run off he when did. the other two weren't looking. <laughs> no, he, did. he didn't really, though. He didn't really. He got up in the morning when they were asleep, <laughs> packed up and left. So he'd be the first one to do it. He didn't, though, did he? That didn't it, actually happen. It did. Didn't it? I, they, they made that out to be more of a more of a thing than it was um or in you know uh pumping iron the uh, the schwarzenegger documentary you know they tried to make out that there was this like big rivalry between him and um uh lou Ferrigno. and and actually the it, it wasn't as big as you know the they, they tried to make it out it, you know schwarzenegger was always going to win so you know it's um i, I just think I, I just think like these are to just do if you actually do balance have you watched a really good running running documentary really good documentary that's about mm. because it, you either focus on the race and the history of a race in which cases there's there's probably lots of races that are quite interesting there's do you know what there's a lot of shit on amazon prime like literally anyone who's decided to run, there was one i think about called the sustained hunt where they mm. wanted to test whether you know, this yeah. whole idea about, um, I think, the, you know, in Born to Run about man's, uh, sorry, humans' ability to, uh, unlike animals, to actually run for prolonged periods of time in order to do the sustained hunt. And they wanted mm. to put to the test by hunting uh, an animal over, a, 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 like, a two-day period or what something. What was the animal? Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I literally watched like three minutes of it and I'm like, this is, the, this is so boring. It's unbelievable. You think it would be quite interesting. Mm. Um, I think, I think it was, just, I, I'm not really sure even where they went to do it. Um, this is, this isn't the greatest review ever. Um, was it but, something like a Wiley Coyote? Cause that would be payback. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to chase him down. I just love it. It was just trying to chase a person down. <laughs> <laughs> or someone dressed as a as a as a gazelle. <laughs> but there there must be some. I mean, Chariots of Fire obviously more of a film. Well, yes, not a documentary at all. Amazing running film. Exactly. Um, but Barclay's and again, great. And again, again with, with that, a lot of artistic license. Yeah. In in what actually happened, it's but still an amazing story. Um, but I just think with running documentaries, really, just they're just really really hard to 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 make captivating. I I don't think if it's if it's less. If, if it's, I don't. I'm not always sure if it's more interesting as a runner because you, in some ways, you you've got more empathy and you've got more interest in it. But then at the same point, you've seen more of them, and you're like, oh, you've got a blister. Oh, you're really tired. <laughs> yeah. Oh, your legs hurt. Uh, and it's and, when, and so it's, it's, it's when it's when people, I think, when they go on camera, they feel that they have to <clears throat> deliver their philosophy about mm. running while they're running. Like you know, to me, it's all about you know. I just I, I focus on this and I try to get to the next you know the next checkpoint or I do yeah you know, and you're just like yeah bullshit man like everyone does that you know who just like oh yeah running to me is just a way of sort of escaping from like the reality of my life and you're like fucking hell that's that's horrific if that, if, that, if if you do running to escape from the reality of your life 
Oh, oh, I've just thought of that. So uh, we're going on quite a few tangents today, but there's a Netflix documentary and a half, Ooh. which I don't know if I should recommend or not. It, I would say it is probably the most intense moment I've ever seen captured on camera. Oh, that isn't that, that isn't something horrific like someone being murdered, like something actually like between two people. Have you seen? Have you heard of Tell Me Who I Am? No. Wow. Uh, saw it on Friday, and um, ooh, how much to say? I don't want to ruin it, but it's essentially there are two identical twins. Sorry, is this is this a documentary? Documentary. Right. Age of seventeen, one of them has a bike crash and completely loses his mind. Right. And so motorbike. Bike, Most, bike. Yeah, motorbike, yeah. So he then, he wakes up and he, he figures out who his brother is because he looks exactly like him. But over the course of the, I guess the first half, first third of the documentary, it talks about how he came to cope because his memory didn't return. None of it. Oh, really? Uh, and so his brother was having to recreate essentially his life up till then. And it was talking about the, the, the mechanisms they did to do that and how when people came to visit, he had a girlfriend and his girlfriend didn't realize. And when they people come to visit, his brother would quickly say, this is their name, you know, them through this, they'd like to talk about that. And it, he, he eventually comes up to speed. But as this is developing and they're explaining more about his life and that there's just elements of weirdness start to creep in. And it turns out that oh no, I don't, I don't, don't tell me, don't tell me what I happens. won't. I won't say, but it, it turns out that something horrific has happened to the brothers, right? And it's not until later, there's not until this this moment in time that happens that the brother who'd lost his memory suddenly suddenly realised and twigs, wow, this is I. I and, and because he had no frame of reference, it was, it was almost like having a blank ca- canvas of yeah. what's normal as, as family life, what's normal as of experiences. And so he didn't really, he didn't have that ability to be able to tell that his current situation was quite odd. And so the documentary then explains how th- the other brother couldn't bring himself to tell him what had happened because it was so harrowing. And because of that, because of his need to find out and the other's refusal to relive that horror, they hadn't spoken for 20 years. So they then bring them back together and they discuss why they can't, why the guy needs to find out and why for his closure and why the guy can't tell them. And then the brother who did have the memory said, I haven't got the strength to tell you face to face what's what's happened but i've recorded it on this laptop and you then watch the brother find out about his history oh my god whilst you hear the 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 um the other brother explaining the situation and i don't think i've ever cried so much at something in my life it's just the most raw television i've ever seen um, so it's it's harrowing if you watch it like it's properly dark but it is just incredible so um yeah do bad as watch it if that sounds for you but yeah you will be 
you will be upset by it. <sighs> so, on to running. <laughs> <laughs> So if you've not listened to the podcast before, we do we do like to do little Netflix recommendations and uh, talk around our lives as well as about running. Should we, well, let's bring it back to some proper running chat. Um, Diamond League cutting more races. Whoa. Have we not talked about this? Well, we talked about it when they cut the 5,000 and Kipchoge then posted about the 5,000 metres the yeah. day after, you know, very much a a way of sticking two things up saying look this is this is where marathon runners come from is which is true but yeah they've now gone and they, they've cut the 5k already they've cut the 10k already they cut oh, in the is, steeplechase this, this was from the um uh the article that uh that i saw and yeah and i didn't yeah and the, there, was, there was one line in it wasn't there that i can't I, think you need to know what was the line oh no, yes what, yeah, so explain so explain exactly what they've decided to cut. So they've now cut also the steeplechase, and which for me, yeah, I mean, how is that a sport to be fair? I mean, that's it's it's better than the walk marathon or the walk half marathon, but speed walking is not much better, I wouldn't say. Um, and they've but crazy, and I assume they've they've cut all sort of uh, field events which having oh, tri- cutting the triple jump as well but they're cutting the 200 meters and that to me is insanity because it doesn't take very long and that is one of the most exciting things to watch I think and also if you think about what would happen if we didn't have the 200 meters Usain Bolt would not be as big a phenomena as he is. Michael Johnson would be practically nothing mm. because the whole birth of Michael Johnson was the fact that he was being seen as being the fastest man on earth, even though he ran the 200 meters and they had the whole Donovan Bailey doing a 150 meters race against each other. Sadly, he pulled his heart, his hamstring, I think. So they never actually finished th- that race, but yeah, without those moments. I mean, that it's a very different sport. You haven't got John Regis. Ah, oh, how can it be a world <laughs> Yes. Yeah, it's actually funny because I, I was trying to think, I can't think of like famous 200 meter, but when, that, when I saw that, because I was thinking, uh, I didn't even know that was uh, that was still a thing. Not, but um, but yeah, yeah you, Smith. But when you, but when yeah, but when you actually then start seeing the role of names, like ah, oh yeah, or like yo, know, you just think all of those. I mean, like I think they were in the report there was, what's it called, the response by the current uh, two hundred meter like world champion going, oh great. <laughs> well, I mean, Dina Asher Smith, she's just won the world championships. And now, and I understand part of what they're trying to do, and and they've said that they're they're trying to get it down to ninety minutes to try and make it as well, basically commercially viable for watching and pub, um, broadcasting around the world on television as much as possible. But come on, the two hundred meters is that's all action in there. But what what's the line? What was the line? What was the other thing that they took into account? Yeah, it's the number of clicks on um, their social media. Social media. But that is, that's crazy because if Jonathan Edwards was triple jump champion now, the triple jump would get far more clicks than it does. If you had an American 200 meter record holder, 
it would have far more clicks than it does now. And so actually they're making these decisions based on the virality of an event that these events are very much led by the power of the individual. Yeah. And I mean, who, who gave a crap about the heptathlon before Denise Lewis came along? Who cared about 400 meter hurdles until Sally Gunnell was in it for the UK? And actually Steve Backley for the javelin. Who, I mean, I haven't watched javelin since. <laughs> but that's, that's the trouble is that you, you can't really take Steve one Back- of these. Steve Backley, God, you're a bit modern with that. I was thinking Fatima Whitbread. <laughs> Fatima Whitbread, yeah, she was, ama- yeah, amazing. And that's the issue is that you can't really take the stats based off even two, three years when actually the reality is social media is changing so quickly and personal tastes are changing so quickly. But um, yeah, who's to say that there's not going to be a kick-ass, crazy, fun 5,000-meter coming uh, runner from America coming up in next year, and suddenly what, what's going to happen to their career? But the thing is, it, the, the problem with it is that it doesn't take into account that some sports, some uh, of those disciplines, just aren't very social media friendly. Yeah. yeah uh, you know, and that's exactly what we were talking about. You know, if you, if you based everything around you know, whether people watch uh, you know, viewership which, which fundamentally, that's fine because you know, actually, you yeah. know, sponsorship different night. But you know, ultras are you know unfilmable and dreadful to watch. Um, you know, and and a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but also, there are there's just going to be you just have to take into account that some things are unviewable, some things are mm. not made to be viewed, but they're still a valid test of ability in that. And so, if you can work on that basis, then all we'll be left with is you know 100 meters you know uh, there's a few of them that are just really exciting for very short periods of time and everything else is anything else that's over a few few minutes is gets scrapped because you know it doesn't translate well to to being shareable and also isn't isn't like the 200 meters like a two for one you've already got half the athletes there for the 100 meters and the the reality of media now is that People aren't sat there in front of one channel watching television the whole time. Even in the UK, you, you, you press the red button to see what's happening elsewhere at the stadium. And so why not just pack it all in and let people watch whatever they want? And you... It's bizarre. It's, it's just it's utterly bizarre. What, what does that actually mean then on that level? So does that mean that those aren't... Because I don't understand this. So does it mean so, that, that they... They haven't been completely got rid of, but they're not at every single Met League event. So the, so the Diamond League is, is essentially, Diamond League, like, Diamond it's, it's essentially like the Grand Slams. So they are the biggest events between continental and global races. Yeah. And so they'll also, depending on the year, quite often they've done some gimmicks where if you win every diamond league in your discipline, you get the share of a million pounds worth of gold or you win a certain car, but people will get appearance fees. They'll be paid to turn up and they'll also win money on the night. And, um, and obviously the exposure that gives as an athlete, but someone like Dina Asher Smith, she, that this is, this is a massive change for her career and her earnings from like from now on she almost is going to have to because i don't know what this will what impact this will have for the olympics and whether people are just going to focus on the 100 meters and then switch as an add-on at the olympics or whether it's going to 
um, you know, if people will stay focused on the 200 for that European champs every other year and the world champs every other year. But their earning potentials drop massively. And, and the, the interesting thing as well, which, and this is where it, it, this, some controversial views here as, as ever, but people have been saying for some time that the trouble is with, with audiences, with television audiences, that people like to see people from their countries compete. Yeah. And the reality is of the steeplechase and the 5,000 metres and the 10,000 metres is they're absolutely dominated by East Africa. And that is unfortunate for the sport because actually it means that we've had Mo to watch. But if Mo wasn't in there, I mean, we, we don't watch the 1,500 metres for Andy Badley coming in eighth or whoever it may be. No. Um, you know, Martin Rooney coming in. 13th in the 400 and so there there was talk for a while that they need to almost change the rules so that they limit how many people can come to the diamond league from each country and so say for example you're only allowed two kenyans two ethiopians and then it became more of a um because you've got the, the, the Danish runners, uh, is it Inge Bretson, the brothers, and they're kind of mi- minor celebrities where they are. And actually, hopefully, with the power of social media and the ability of runners to reach out to people in their own communities, people aren't going to be having to be winning these events to necessarily be getting the, the profile that they can garner just through social media. So if instead it is just you make sure you've got an American in every run, you make sure you've got a Brit in every run. You make sure you've got a German in every run. You, you cover the key global television and advertising audiences. And because the 5K and the 10K have been dropped. Now, if Mo Farah was in there against Gallen Rupp and we had, or, you know, or uh, Legat, and we had all these different runners from, from countries with big audiences, would the 5K have been dropped? Probably not, because... It's not just that it's not that friendly to watch, but the reality is if you've got three Kenyans who all know each other, who are all racing probably to team orders or potentially in their own hierarchy, they're not going to attack each other. Whereas if you only get one Kenyan, two Kenyan, and you've suddenly got more people from other countries, then it's going to throw open the, um, the opportunity for more people to attack to make it more exciting. Yes. Yeah. So to a certain extent, this is this is the sad end of something that we probably should have been examining years ago and trying to figure out, you know, rather than just as this instinctive decision now to say, how can we ensure that the 5K is more interesting um, or the 10K is more interesting? And uh, yeah, but maybe it's too late. Maybe they'll come back. Who knows? Um, but if you're Dino Asher Smith now, you've been working your whole life to be 200 meter champion. You've won it, and that's the last time you're going to be on TV other than the Olympics <laughs> and the world's. I mean, it's horrific. Oh, that is horrific, isn't it? Yeah. I talk about yeah, pulling the rug from under you. Yeah, completely, completely. Um, oh well, God. On that, on that happy note. I can't even remember who we're introducing next. At drugs, is that what? Is that what? Is that how we're going to make it more interesting? It's going to be like it's going yeah. to be like a Formula One. Is everyone's going to be going turbo? But even if they made the five thousand meters in it, I mean, it would be a bit more of a freak show. But they've they've done it with the the one mile. But if they cut the last person every lap, 
that would be fun. That would be really fun. And the Diamond League... Add a, add a polar bear into it. <laughs> yeah, but the, the Diamond League's about entertainment, essentially, because people are turning up for fees and it's about engaging people in the sport. And I haven't got a problem with making the Diamond League fully fun and saving the big races until the Olympics and the World Champs, because that would be even better where you suddenly go into the World Champs and you're discussing, well, actually, who is the best at just a straight 5K when it's not lap on lap? And that changes everything. And imagine you've got like the 12th best guy who happens to be English and he knows he can run 3K faster than the world record place pace he's going to run that 3k faster than world record pace to stay in as long as he can because he's going to be judged on how many laps he does and that's going to be one hell of a race well actually from um i mean our next guest we don't discuss the more relevant side of of the the conversation we just had but our next guest mark masterled not only is he a sports agent in ultra running which is Unheard completely. of. <laughs> yeah, unheard of, yeah. And, and uh, completely to do with managing people's careers. Um, but also, wow, wait until you hear his technology. Take it away, Nick. So, do badders, we've got quite an interesting episode for you today. Um, you know, when you read emails and you, you see a new product coming out and you part of you thinks, this can't be true. Part of you thinks, oh, please let this be true. And part of you thinks, um, am I going to be able to get one for myself? Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> so um, to, to come on the show to talk about um, the new product, Halo, we have uh, the, I, I can't remember your role, Mark. Are you CEO, um, head of marketing? I am a CEO, yeah. The CEO of Halo. We've got the lovely Mark Mastalli. How are you doing? <laughs> Really, really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you about Halo Neuroscience. I mean, t- before we go into, because there's so many questions, but just to start us off, how would you describe it as a product? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, athletes are always looking for a competitive advantage, David, you know, whether it be through, you know, kind of nutrition, um, you know, kind of new training methods, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we actually uh, have introduced a device. We started selling it back in September of 16. And what it uses is uh, is it uses basically electricity. And we put that in the motor cortex area of the brain, which is the area that's right above the ears. And it basically makes the neurons in your brain a little bit more excitable. And it helps your brain basically send stronger signals to your muscles and helps you perform better. So I can talk all about things like neural drive, which I'll tell you more about, but basically what it does is it forms a stronger connection between your brain and your muscles. So that helps uh, endurance athletes and ultra distance runners in particular. How is this? Cause this seems like a, like three steps further than I knew that science could make. So how did, <laughs> how was this created? Yeah. So an interesting, I'm not a, I'm not a founder of the company, but our two founders are basically neuroscientists and, and biome- biomedical engineers and they had worked at a previous company called Neuropace, and Neuropace invented an implantable device for people with severe epilepsy. So basically, when you had an epileptic seizure, David, it would send a, a counter signal to your brain and stop the procedure. So pretty amazing technology, uh, pretty small applications. Not a lot of patients wanted to go through the process of installing it. But during that time, about six, seven years ago, there was a growing body of evidence um, regarding something called transcranial direct current stimulation, otherwise known as TDCS. And it was mostly in a lab setting, but 
scientists were finding that if they could uh, apply electrodes to the to the brain, it would basically make the neurons in your brain a little bit more excitable and help them build a stronger connection to your muscles. Our first product um, just happened to be a set of headphones because athletes are used to mostly listening to music or listening to head, you know, music through headphones. And fortuitously, the motor cortex area of the brain is the area right above your ears where headphone bands go. So we basically took all of this science that had been found in a lab, bundled it in a really nice set of headphones and just made it a consumer device. So that's kind of how the company came to be. Um, was it something was it something that people have been asking for or something that was already being looked at for athletes and this was yeah, just the next stage or was it or was it something that was just completely bang we've you know this you've, you've never seen this before yeah so it, people had seen it before but only in a lab setting so like these expensive boxes with these really wet electrodes so it there had been a lot of research and the body research had been growing so much it had been so convincing that our you know, co-founders felt that there was time for them to kind of leave their old business and start a new business. So that's how it came about there. But we just built the company on all the evidence that had been out in the field. We actually didn't invent the the science itself, obviously. And so, so how does, how, has, how do you test to make sure that there aren't going to be negative consequences of, of, of essentially doing a little bit of a small fry of the brain? Right. So that's a great question. I mean, clearly, you know, safety is a, a huge uh, part of what we do. So, you know, in all that research that I had mentioned that had been established before we even started the company, there had never really been any adverse, you know, cases. We are introducing about two milliamps of electricity to the brain, which is an incredibly small amount. So by the time that amount penetrates the skin and the skull and actually gets to the neurons, it's, it's significantly less than that. Um, so it's about the amount of electricity it takes to light a, a, a light on an LED kind of circuit board. So it's really, really small. So, you know, so we were concerned about that, but we've never had any adverse cases of, of you know, people reporting issues after probably right by now over six or 700,000 neurostimulation sessions. So, so what kind of percentage would we say of a Frankenstein level bolt would this be? Yeah. We had to try and estimate. <laughs> right. So yeah, everyone thinks of like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and, you know, all of that. <laughs> so it is, uh, it's nothing like that. I mean, we, you know, it, it, it's in, it's a very small amount. So out of that two milliamps, I don't know, maybe a quarter of that gets to your brain. So it's really small. So, uh, and your brain, as you know, is already an electrical field anyway. I mean, there's billions of signals being sent through neurons every second. So all we're doing is exciting those, the, the cor cortex area just a little bit more. So safety's, you know, not, you know, not really in our mind a concern here. Can you a, feel a, it? A lot, oh, God, sorry. No, you go ahead, Jenny. No, I say a, a lot of wearables, um, like wearable technology, have come from technology that used to be implanted. And so that, how long, how long has like the implantation technology been around yeah. in, in yeah, terms Julie, of testing? Yeah, great question. I mean, a long time. So, I mean, I would guess in uh, probably around 30 years. Um, so a long, long time. I mean, everything from talk about implantables, not just the brain, but obviously things like pacemakers and all of that type of stuff. So, you know, so clearly the brain is is different. Um, but there's there are other devices besides epilepsy devices that people install in the in the brain now. But, you know, our founders, you know, just believe that, you know, there's a lot of barriers to installing something in your brain. And that's mm -hmm. a huge decision to <laughs> yeah. make. And a huge amount of Plus, it's really dangerous. So we could, you know, de develop a, a basically a, a, you know, a neurostimulator that just was used, you know, outside of the brain. We felt that was, you know, a great, a great, uh, you know, great thing to develop. 
And um, is it something that is you can permanently have on? Yeah, so the answer is no, and there's diminishing returns. So so we call it, so here, here let me just tell you a little bit how, how it works. I think mm. that's a good place to start. So it's basically a, a set of headphones, and it has electrodes in it, and electrodes are what conducts the electricity. So all you do is you download the Halo app. You, there's only a couple things you can select. So you can select the amplitude, so how high the signal goes. So the higher the higher it is, the more you kind of feel a, most people report a tingling sensation or a warming sensation. So you can adjust that to, to whatever feels comfortable. And secondly, you can choose if you want to do leg, core, and arm session or right hand and left, left hand session. So if you choose a, a right hand session, let's pretend you're a, or a left hand, let's pretend you're a a basketball player and you're trying to develop more bat, you know, dribbling skills in your left hand, let's pretend that's your non-dominant hand. Mm. We send current to the right area of the motor cortex, the area above your right ear. That's the area that controls your left hand. So we can conduct, we can control where the signal goes. And then all you need to do is wear the unit for 20 minutes. There's a countdown timer. And that 20-minute neurostimulation session, that gives you about an hour of what we call hyperplasticity or hyperlearning. So once you take the device off, you've got about an hour of benefit from wearing the product. So we tell people where you can't do more than 20 minutes um, that we shut it off so you don't overstimulate, but you do it about you know four or five times a week during your hard training days, and that's how you benefit from using the product. And, and so does it, do you have to choose between left and right? Well, you do, yeah. We, you do just because of the way that we've set up the montage on the, on the timer. So uh, it's, just, it's just the way it works. You can choose either leg, core, arms, or right and left. And that's just because of the way that the, the product was developed. So um, most people oh. don't want to do both. They just choose one. But. Oh, so you could, so you wouldn't have to choose your left leg over your right leg. You could choose no. legs as a, okay. That's probably yeah. quite useful. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So, sorry, let me just say, so clarify. So you basically, so someone looking to improve that would, would go put this on for 20 minutes and then train exactly yeah warm up whatever your warm-up is and you know truth be told david i mean a lot of people you know they're busy and and wearing it for 20 minutes in a gym setting or doing drills if you're a runner or whatever it is you know it's it's impractical so a lot of people will wear it you know driving to the gym the truth is that hour of hyperplasticity after you take the device off is where you get the most benefit so that's where you really want to get into your the core of your workout so it, it only really starts working once you've taken it off, or is it working from the moment of that first 20 minutes? It's working for the moment of your first 20 minutes, but it's like a kind of a, a curve, you know, like a bell curve almost. So the most of the benefit comes after you take it off and once you start working out. So I would say after that 20-minute neurostimulation, probably the next 15 or 20 minutes is the most valuable part of your training session. So, so this is the bit that confused me somewhat because – I looked into it and I understand if you're trying to do something that's fairly complicated. So for me, I was quite excited by the ability to learn a dance routine and to have my, because <laughs> it's, yep. it's probably. Wow. Wow. What a, what a use. What a, <laughs> a well, you know, I'm getting married next year. I want to bust out of the grooves, but, um, but, <laughs> but it, it made sense to me as someone who was, if you were playing basketball and you were trying to get better at dribbling or you were trying to do something which took a lot of coordination where the mind is really interacting with the muscles and, and, and that made complete sense how the, how um, having a in heightened learning ability during that was useful what i wasn't quite sure sure though was how how do you apply it to something like running where i mean 
we're pretty brainless beings runners anyway but i i assume that there's not much thought process going on when we're training well that's a great question let me take like two minutes since i you know you and i and, and we're all passionate about ultra distance running and, and about running in general and i you know i wish i'd had this product i don't know if i told you this prior to us talking but i was a uh, back in way before you were probably born back in 86 uh, i was the best uh, oh, runner in the behave world. behave <laughs> <laughs> so i was the uh, I was you were at university you mean yeah <laughs> right yeah right so i was the fastest kid in the united states uh in in high school in the in the 1600 meters so i ran 404 15 in high school and was a runner-up at the national cross-country championship which was called the kinney nationals at the time now it's the footlocker but um you know, I went to Stanford on a track scholarship. I ended up running some four minutes for the mile and I went to the Olympic trials in 92. So I, I have a passionate running background and, mm. you know, as you may know, worked for years at Reebok and Nike and Hoka and all that type of stuff. So anyway, so to, to explain kind of how it works in running. So most people don't know, scientists know, but most, most athletes don't know that the brain plays a huge role in endurance and fatigue. So there's really two types of fatigue. Uh, there's something called peripheral fatigue, which is a, a kind of a transient decrease really in a muscle group's capacity for exercise. So to put that into layman's terms, it really explains why runners kind of gasp for breath at the end of a race or the burn that they feel when they're running. That, that's peripheral fatigue. There's also something called central fatigue, and that's where we come in. So central fatigue is the changes in the intercortial excitability in the brain that causes what's called a decrease in neural drive. So in other words, the longer you work out, the weaker the signal is from your brain to your muscles. And that's that's why people kind of – that's the brain's limiting capacitor, so why you don't hurt yourself. So you can't pr you know push yourself too far. The brain just sends weaker and weaker signals, and your body basically stops functioning. So – but by repeatedly practicing long distance exercises, athletes train their brains to fend off this fatigue and that helps build endurance over time. So what we do, which is called neurostimulation, increases the body's capacity for endurance and allows them to basically push their perceived exertion potential closer to their true exertion potential. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that's effectively what we do is we, we allow the brain to send stronger signals to your muscles for a longer period of time, which helps you stave off central fatigue. So is it a case of then using this ideally for things like your, your interval training and also for your, uh, I guess, your threshold sessions? Or could we go out and on our long runs, run for two hours, then put this on and then get the maximum benefit when our brain is really losing control of that last hour and a half of running or so that we may be yeah. doing that, that we'd struggle? That's a great question. So, you know, so the question, yeah, it, so that it's the former, you can't wear it afterwards because what it does is it ingrains the signals and helps strengthen the signals, the neurons, basically path, neural pathways to your muscles. So you do need to wear it when you're warming up. You need to do it when you're training. You know, truth be told, it doesn't help. If you're going out for a two hour run, as I mm -hmm. mentioned previously, it really only helps for that 20 minute neuro priming session that hour afterwards. So you don't really get that benefit for the last, call it 40, 50 minutes of your run. So in fact, particularly if you're running an ultra, you don't get that benefit. But what you are doing, as I mentioned, is you're really helping, you know, once again, strengthen your neural pathways. So you get, so when you do get tired, and in fact, you will get tired, it's just delayed in the process of you running. It won't prevent it, but it just delays that onset of perceived exertion. And if, how long would, because 
with all these things, um, as, as soon as you say put one in my hands, I'd use it for 20 minutes and an hour. And then mm-hmm. while I was in that hour, I'd start putting it on for the last 20 minutes to get the next hour to then have you tested if this can be repeat use used yeah. and if that if that is effective or is it then damaging it, yeah it does so it, it's not damaging but it doesn't help you so we have done tests so besides we came to that 20 minute session based on not only scientific research but based on our our kind of research with thousands of, of you know people we ran through our offices here in san francisco prior to us even launching the device we found that any time over 20 minutes does not give you extended neuroplasticity it doesn't help at all and doing it as you mentioned maybe you know two hours and two hours that doesn't help at all either so we purposely lock you out you can't can't do a neuropriming session more than once every eight hours. And that's just an internal clock we have. Just we don't mm. want people to overdo it, but it still doesn't help. It really is like once every 24 hours is, is you know, what we found really, really helps. So there's no benefit to doing it more than that. And does it, does it create any kind of long-term improvement or is this all very much a short-term improvement that they'll kind of help you get through it? It's long term for sure. Um, you have to keep using the product. I mean, if you stop using the product like anything else, you're, you yeah. know, it will, it will still, you know, it will still have helped you to a certain point, but that will degrade over time. Most likely not back to where you were before you started using Halo because you still have built these neural circuits in your brain and you've strengthened those, but it will certainly diminish over time if you don't continue to use the, the product. And when you're, say you're, you're wearing this product and you happen to have, a certain wet look hair gel or you've got <laughs> you've got you know, really big ears or, or one really big ear is there a chance that it's gonna lock into a slightly different part of the brain or right. that the electrical yeah. current's gonna be um perverted in some way that's a great question so you know to tell you like it has to certainly the product the, the primers those foam primers i mentioned they have to be wet so you have to wet them to, to help conduct electricity. So hair gel doesn't really matter. Actually, the wetter your skin is, the easier it, it conducts electricity. But that area, the motor cortex I mentioned, it's it's fairly um, similar on most people. There's some, you know, a few millimeters, maybe either direction. But the product is is built such that, first of all, it's really easy to use as long as you have it straight over your ears, which is how most people place it on without even being you know, kind of taught or, or prompted to do it, it meets those tolerances of a few millimeters either direction. And mm. furthermore, the product knows if you don't have good contact and it's not, you know, not uh, adhering rightly into the right place. So it, it will not let you start a connection unless you get the product aligned properly. Now, um, one thing I was wondering, because you've mentioned how it, it helps with the um, sending the messages to the tired muscles, but um, I, as runners, we're less likely to start learning or to, to learn during our sessions than something like dancing or even skilled sports. But say you were someone who was learning to run a in a different fas- fashion. You were changing your running technique yeah. or yeah. you wanted to learn how to run downhill on, on a, a technical trail where you're really having to engage the brain. Is that something where it would improve your ability to pick up these skills? Yeah, so 100%. So that's a great question. The other thing I didn't mention when I was talking to you about fatigue is that, you know, we can help improve people's form and technique. And as you guys know, I mean, form and technique is is critical, whether you're running downhill or whatever you're trying to learn. So absolutely. So we can create 
you know, stronger and, and new neural pathways in your brain by using the product. So what I emphasize to people is you have to use proper form and technique. So, you know, if you go out and you do junk, if you wear the product and you do kind of like, let's call it, you know, bad quality exercises or drills or technique, it will reinforce bad qualities, drills and technique. You have to practice good form. You know, with running, it's it's maybe somewhat easier with certain other sports like golf, for example, where you guys probably know. I mean, it's a game of, of, of you know, basically millimeters. I mean, golf is all about repeating the same swing over and over and over. And, you know, just and that's really critical. So we tell people sometimes if you're doing golf, it's probably good to have a golf instructor watch you and teach you performance technique with running. You know, I don't know, you probably have a theory on this that's better than mine, but I've always, you know, there's shufflers out there. There's people that have like high, you know, whatever heel, um, you know, all those type of things. For me, running has always been whatever, you know, kind of feels the most comfortable and that you're, you know, that works for you do. But, you know, I obviously some people want to change their form of technique. We can help with that for sure. And and with the um, going back to the, the, the first kind of suggested use, I was thinking you. Camille Heron uses it. Um, yeah. Is it something where, like, it, would it be legal, say she's doing a 24-hour race, to put it on with an hour and a half to go? Yeah, I would say no. Like, we've never tested that. So uh, backing up a little bit, we are, you know, the, all of the governing bodies, whether they be the USOC or USADA or whoever knows about our product, because we, we work with a lot of kind of um, governing bodies and sports here in the U.S., including we work with the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association, you know, groups like that. So we're we're well known in the in the kind of call it the regulatory community, and they've never taken a stand on the device, you know, being um, you know anything less than legal. Mostly because the brain is already electrical fields, so we're just adding a little bit of current. You're not ingesting anything, and and secondly, you have to do the training, David. Like you can't just wear the device and sit on your couch and become a better athlete. So it has to be coupled with with training. So we're not really worried about any regulatory issues. Um, but I would think during a race, um, clearly, I, I you know I don't know what the rule would be, but I would think it would probably be illegal to use it during a, a training or a racing competition. Okay. Um, Just my suspicion. I don't have any foundation for that, but my gut tells me it probably wouldn't uh, be be okay. I think, I, you've, you've, I think you've disappointed a lot of our listeners by saying that it's not one of those ones where you could just plug in and not doing any training. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think you know, it's good. Like if you, if you want to sit on the couch and drink beer, you can become a better beer drinker. So that's all Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're at perfection already in that school. So, uh, but, you know, we yeah. are willing we're, to learn. looking for incremental gains. So this could be impressive. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and have the results then, are they... Is it something that's been able you've been able to quantify um, any of the yeah. results of this? Sure. So we work, like I said, I mean the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association. All of these eight, these groups have done their own testing on the device. We've clearly done our own, but they've done basically these uh, double-blind uh, placebo groups. And what happens is we we can we can give them a, a sham device that basically. You know, for any kind of person that's trying it, it sends a signal to your it's, it puts electrical current to your brain. It kind of like jo you feel it working and then we just turn it off. So like you get a stim, you feel like it's working and not. So you get maybe 30 seconds worth of, of stimulation. Our other control group will have the hopeful 20 minutes of stimulation. And then we've tested people, you know, after a you know few week period or U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association has. And what they found was. You know, it depends on the sport, clearly, but some people see a, a 10 to 12 percent improvement in their performance, which is really, really significant. 
Um, the San Francisco Giants, the baseball team, use it um, to measure bat speed. So clearly, if you're a professional baseball player, you may see you know smaller incremental gains than the average person because you're already you know at the peak of your sport. But they were seeing anywhere from a one to two mile an hour increase in bat, bat speed, and that's really really significant if you're a professional baseball player. So uh, Michael Johnson, who I know he's not an ultra distance guy, but everyone knows MJ. Um, he uses it down at his uh, training facility in Texas for athletes that are going through the NFL Combine test, and he's seen he's seen a huge increase in in output from athletes that are doing Combine type activities. So there's a lot of third party research on it, you know, besides our own. So we feel confident in the in the science. And and where do you see this ultimately going? Is this a you know is this product? just one skew that's focused on physical movement do, do you think in the future we're going to have very similar things from halo or, or others that are used yeah. in classrooms that are used at work um and, and and ultimately is is this going to become i guess the next difference between the haves and the haves nots right so that's a great question. So I'll answer that in a couple different ways. So, you know, we, there are other areas of the brain that are really fascinating from a scientific standpoint. So in particular, the area that's right above your eyebrows on the, you know, on your forehead is, is called the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex or the prefrontal cortex. That area of your brain is responsible for things like language acquisition skills, standardized test taking, working memory is what people call it. So, you know, that's an area that we're exploring. There is a lot of a lot of science on that area of the brain. And if you think a little bit more about kind of more clinical things, uh, that area of your brain is also responsible for depression. And as you know, depression, whether it be, you know, moderate depression that people feel or, or even things like postpartum depression after women have babies, if you could, you know, and there's a ton of drugs in the market for that right now. But you know, as you know, I mean, taking drugs you know, has usually adverse effects on the body. It has lasting effects. It's just generally not good for you. So if we could send current to that area of the brain specifically and help people with depression, that could be pretty cool. Now, there has to be a lot of clinical research. We have to get, you know, FDA approval or CE mark in the UK, for example. That's an area that fascinates us. And, and it's certainly something that we're exploring. So we, we just are not limited to the motor cortex. We want to explore other areas of the brain as well. And um, and um, do you, do you see a time then where there'll almost be a I mean if we're talking dystopian this a split in in society where it, essentially if you want to do well in life you're going to need to use some kind of brain stimulating machine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a valid question. So I mean one of the one of the things we did with Halo Sport is like anything you know when you first introduce a product it's expensive because you're not making it at scale. And, you know, you're testing the market and figuring out, you know, what price really works. So our first product mm. was Halo Sport, the original, we launched back in November of 2016. That product was $749. Um, we sold that product for almost two years. And back in January of this year, we introduced Halo Sport 2. By the way, did we send you one of these or did you ever receive one? Um, not that I know of, no. Dude, okay, because I wanted to try to get you one prior to this podcast, but I'd like you to try it, and, and I'm sure you'll, you know, hopefully, you know, you certainly will be objective about the results that you get. So I'll be sure we get one to you. But when we introduced it back in January of this year, we were able to bring the price point down to three ninety nine, um, and oftentimes we'll sell it for three hundred or two ninety nine or somewhere in that range. So we really do believe that this is a product we want to try to get in the hands of as many people as possible, and. You know, while I understand $300 is still a lot of money for a lot of people, 
you know, we're, you know, we continually work to try to drive the price down so we can make it more of a mass, you know, market product. So we don't want to exclude everyone. I mean, it's kind of how technology, it's whether even running shoes or watches. I mean, there's a lot of things that are expensive out there, but we want to try to get it down to a price that's affordable for like a, just any other training aid you might use. And and from from what you've looked into of supply chains, that, things like that, do you think we'll see, will this become, you know, a 60 dollar hundred dollar product at some point in the future or do you think it would always be fairly expensive yeah i mean i don't think it can be that that inexpensive um especially i mean if we didn't have audio and our audio experience is you know it's bluetooth to your phone it's really it's comparable to like a beats by dre type experience so Mm. we're giving you kind of a, a headset and neural stimulation for the same price as like a beats product which we're pretty proud about but so we'd have to, I think, sacrifice audio quality or maybe even eliminate audio quality. And I'm not sure how many people would care if we could get the price down to, you know, call it 149. There's no audio, um, mm. but it's something we're exploring. But yeah, I think even at the current product with on scale with, you know, building, call it 30,000, 40,000 units at a time, we could certainly get the price down to, you know, sub 200. And and I've just got to some of the questions from the, the listeners. Do you think this is going to be used in, for military purposes in the future as that's well? A, yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, it's interestingly enough, um, our first client was the U.S. military. So uh, so we started working um, a long time ago. There's a, a group down at Moffett Field, actually, that was kind of set up under the uh, Obama administration uh, when Ash Carter was Secretary of Defense. Mm. And their sole mission was to take um, kind of consumer-based technologies and get them deployed more rapidly through the military. So they were our first customer. We were their first customer. And they bought a bunch of units and deployed them through uh, Naval Special Warfare and Armory Special Operations, um, which was pretty cool. So we're already being used by some of the most elite forces in the U.S. Uh, military. Um, so we hope to expand that, obviously, to, to other you know, kind of NATO allies, if you will, around the world. I say, yeah, have you sold it to any other militaries? That's the question. Yeah, to Canada, to Australia, not yet to the UK. Um, I was over in uh, Dubai uh, in December meeting with the Dubai military as well. So they're currently evaluating the product as well. It's just a, you know, procurement, as you can imagine, with the US military, it takes a long time to, or any military, to basically everyone wants to do their new tests and evaluation. So even though like we've, we've there's been a huge amount of research um, done with uh, with the uh, Air Force, it's called the AFRL, which is the Air Force Research Lab in Colorado Springs. They proved that our device, and they bought our product and tested it independently, our device helps with multitasking. So particularly as you're, you know, using, you know, doing many, many things in the military, you know, whether it be flying a drone and looking at controls and, and you know, being sure that the altitude is right, the ang- a lot of things like that require multitasking. We can help with that as well. So we're making traction, getting traction, but it just it takes a long time to go through the procurement cycle. Well, it sounds incredible. Have you, have you, um, have you got any other questions, JD, on this one? No, I was just looking through the questions that um, uh, Dubat has asked. I think we've we've covered most of them. Most of the questions were around um, safety and how safe it was, mm-hmm. and I think there was a, there was another question about um, you know um, application on the medical side. But if it's come from um, medical application, then, yeah. then that's that's clear. I think there's just there's, there's I think one of these things is that there's there's probably a lot of disbelief about it. Um, yeah. Until until people try it. Yeah, and I would look. I was skeptical as well. I mean, you know, anyone tells you this stuff, and I, I read forums, and you know, to be honest with you, it's kind of like 
all you can do is say, hey, these athletes use it. Like often, you know, people that we don't like, even in like the triathlon world, like Tim O'Donnell, who, you know, was just, he was second in the Ironman this year. I think the first American ever to break at eight hours. Like he uses the product. He found the product and bought the product first. And then we later did a contract with Tim just because we wanted to get content, you know, for our website. But there's a lot of athletes who are organically found the product without mm. us paying them. And Camille Heron, obviously being one of them that use it and believe in it. So I understand that there's going to be skepticism. I guess all we fall back on is like, first of all, the integrity of our, our athletes and our, and the research partners who I mentioned that have used the product and tested the product without any knowledge of us and they believe in it. And then also we tell all of our customers, listen, we, we will take the product back from you anytime, any reason, if you don't think you're getting a result. So we stand behind this product and, and, you know, a lot of people, I think we get a very, very low return rate. And I think with the product that's this expensive, if you weren't getting the result that you wanted, you just send it back. It's not like a Fitbit watch that costs 49 bucks that you throw in your drawer and let it collect dust. So we stand mm. behind the product and our return rate for people who don't get the results they want is less than 2%. And I don't even know if their results are realistic. I mean, you're not going to go from being a, you know, a five minute miler to a sub four minute miler, miler wearing halo. It's just not realistic. So um, anyway, I don't, you know, it, it's just the, that's how we operate the business. And if people don't like it, your listeners don't like it, they're free to send it back. Amazing. Well, we'll, um, we'll, we'll try and get some code or discount code or something like that for the listener if, uh, if yeah. they you know, are, are interested in buying it. And I think it's the unusual thing about this product. It's one of those things you almost are desperate for it to be true. But at the same point, there's a little bit of fear of like, wow, maybe this is true. And it's, it, it could be one of those products you end up just not wanting not to have if everyone else does, if, if the advantages can be that impressive versus, uh, yeah, not having it essentially. Yeah. No, but we'd be happy to get your listeners a discount code for sure. So I can kind of create one and send one through after this call. But yeah, I, I encourage people like, look, I don't ever want to downplay people's skepticism. Um, you know, cause I understand that. And as I mentioned before I joined the business, I was skeptical as well. And now, you know, now I believe now I, you know, I use the product myself and I believe in it and, um, you know, and I hope, uh, if people give it a try, they'll, they'll have the same results. Now we, uh, we also wanted to get you on because of your, your other role, which, uh, I know you've got time for, for them all, but clearly you're, you're a man who's very good at multitasking, but maybe because of the product. <laughs> maybe because of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But we've, in the past, we've, we've spoken to a company that, manage athletes but not really as agents they're more um we've, we've done a podcast on people who've represented second tier african runners essentially but you're the first sporting agent we've spoken to but as far as i know the only one who's actually a kind of sporting agent for, for ultra runners so how how has that come about and and what does it actually involve yeah. So that, thank you. I mean, I, I'm really proud about the, that business. So I'll kind of, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the phone call, I, you know, my background was a runner at, at Stanford university here in California and I went to the Olympic trials. And after I didn't make the team in 92, I just was luckily, uh, you know, kind of hired by Reebok, who was my sponsor at the time to get into the footwear industry and, and particularly, you know, running sports marketing. And, and I spent a lot of years at Reebok, uh, a lot of years at Nike and also worked at Hoka so I have a, you know, kind of a deep understanding of how, uh, you know, footwear companies view athletes and, and, and sponsorships, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a few years ago when I was approached a really an athlete that I had signed way back when I was at Reebok um, in the early 90s. Her name was at the, Julie Spites or she became Julie Henner and now Julie Benson. But Julie 
was uh, on the 1996 U.S. Olympic team in the 1500 meters, just a, a great athlete and a, a great friend of mine. She happened to, uh, at the, she coached at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, and she happened to coach a guy that you're all too familiar with, a guy named Jim Walmsley. Mm. And, you know, Jim is just one of my favorite people and just such a great guy. So Jim at the time was evaluating a, a deal from Hoka where I used to work. Um, you know, for sponsorship. And, and she said, Hey, can you get together with Jim? This is prior to Jim's first Western States. So we met up at Squaw. I talked to him. I advised him strongly not to sign the deal. I didn't think it was a great deal. And Jim hired me as his agent. He, he turned down the deal. And you guys remember his first attempt at Western, you know, going mm. off course, all that stuff. But mm. we ended up, you know, do, doing a much, much larger deal than he had on the table um, at the time, a multi-year deal with Hoka. And I created a company called Millennium Sports Marketing as a result. So Jim was really, really kind to me. He introduced me to people like Tim Frericks and, and Cody Reed and people like that. And I kind of launched a little you know, side business doing sports marketing. So since I've gone on you know, to represent people like Camille Heron, Sabrina Stanley, Amelia Boone, Mayor June Edwards, and Jason Slarb. So it's been really fun. Um, and to be honest with you, I think the reason I've been able to, to help them basically get better deals for themselves and they're able to get it is I'm so, you know, I'm pretty well networked within the running shoe industry. So I know people, you know, from Adidas Outdoor in Germany to Altria to Hoka, like across the board, I know a lot of people. So I'm kind of able to reach out to a group of people at the same time and create a sense of scarcity and demand. So people, you know, want to, you know, to come in and I don't want to say create a bidding war, but like getting multiple offers, like selling your house, right? Mm. If you get one offer, you don't have any leverage. If you get multiple offers, you have leverage. And I've been able to get, you know, generally multiple offers from my athletes, which puts them in a better position financially, which all of us know in the ultra world, they're not well paid and everyone deserves to get paid more. So that's kind of something that I really, really pride myself in. And because part of the reason why you know we haven't almost reached out to an agent to try and interview them is because... Partly because we're in the UK, um, the the level of sponsorship seems to be so low. But I mean, how many professional ultra athletes would you estimate there are in the US, like full time professional? Yeah. So, you know, and look, a lot of them are working second jobs and all that type of stuff. And mm. I'm really kind of proud that actually a lot of people I work with were able to give up their second job and pursue their running just because of the deals we got from it. It's not only footwear deals, but it's also nutrition, hydration, all of those type of things. So that's been really, really cool. But I'd estimate kind of like full-time athletes in the U.S. Um, that actually, let's just be more specific, that could actually get a paying uh, sponsorship deal, mm. probably numbers less than 25 people. So it's really small. Now there's hundreds of people, you know, kind of pursuing it full-time or part-time or whatever you want to call it, but none of those people are getting any monetary support from other, you know, from kind of these footwear, hydration, nutrition, et cetera, companies. So it's, it's pretty sad. And, and come without getting into specifics of, of any individuals, like what kind of salary range would we be talking from? Sure. So say, say for example, uh, Killian came to you and said, right, I've got no sponsors. Can you fix me up? How much right. would you, how much do you reckon you could leverage, leverage K Killian for? Yeah. So, you know, it depends, like obviously you call it primaries, what you have to look for for someone like Killian who has a, you know, big, big primary sponsors, you've got to look for what I call non-endemics. Mm. So meaning like, you know, is it like, I don't know, uh, Toyota or, you know, is it, you know, 
whatever, some bank, you know, out of France. That's what you kind of have to start looking for um, because he's kind of tapped, if, if you will, most of the deals he can he can do in the endemic space. But say but say he, um say that he was clean from now on. He he wasn't linked to any brands because that's yeah. something I've just got no concept of. Like how how yeah. much is someone like Killian worth to a brand, like a, to a right. running brand? Yeah. So I would tell you from like, from a footwear perspective, and this is like, you know, Killian is, is probably the highest paid in the sport. I would argue, you know, since I know these deals, you know, Jim Walmsley's number two, mm. I mean, they're certainly making, you know, more, certainly more than six figures for their footwear deals specifically. So over a hundred thousand dollars a year for sure on just their footwear. Okay. Um, I mean, that's, that's not bad going that, I mean, it's, Right. And, you know, the prize money is is huge, obviously, as well. I mean, if you win on some of the, if you win a Western States, mm. I mean, you're there, whether it's a Nike deal or a Hoka deal or whatever it is. I mean, you're those are tier one races. So call it UTMB, Western, all those things. You're looking at anywhere from twenty to twenty five thousand dollar bonus for that race specifically. And if you set a course record, you're looking probably for another 15 or 20. So, I mean, if you're the pinnacle of your sport and you're doing those type of things, you could be picking up, you know, $30,000, $35,000 in just bonus money from that particular race alone. And which, I mean, how many of these A races, kind of Grand Slam races, are there? And and which ones, what do the sponsors view as being the most uh, high profile ones. Yeah. I mean, so I would tell you like, you know, Western UTMB um, are clearly kind of tier one races. And then Mm. you've got some people consider comrades a tier one race as well Mm. um, for bonuses. And then, you know, then there's a, and there may be a couple more on the list than that, but then you go tier two, which still pay, you know, 10,000 or so dollars to win. I mean, then that's kind of everything else that could be anything from, you know, the North face 50 here in San Francisco to, you know, to, to, uh, Lake Sonoma 50 to hard rock, you know, all those type of races we're talking, you know, easily $10,000 to win that race. And then there's smaller, you know, races, obviously there are tier three races that, you know, some people run as well, but they're, you know, a lot of people, I mean, for a lot of my athletes in particular, you know, they'll make more in bonus, you know, bonuses than they mm. necessarily will in base every year. But it's just, and some of them are, but you know, very comparable basically, but, um, you know, they're, they're doing well, like, uh, you know, and I'm just happy to be an advocate for them. Cause I think, mm. you know, I see ultra distance running as getting a lot more press and being a lot more interesting. I mean, Camille, you know, after Camille just set the 24 hour world record, Mm -hmm. um, you know, she's getting, you know, she has interviews with, you know, the New York times and it it, just these more mainstream publications. I think obviously the more mainstream the sport goes and the more these people aren't seeing as being, you know, these crazy athletes who do crazy things, the better off it is for everyone involved. And and in terms of the the difference between the companies and what they negotiate, because there are some trainers for example that are very ultra focused and are embedded in that community and are essentially just ultra shoes but then you've got the huge brands you know you've mentioned your Reeboks your Nikes your Adidas are are they paying similar like like for like depending on the athlete or are you seeing that the ultra brands are able to justify more because they sell more product to ultras or is it that the bigger brands are now using the halo effect of, of effect of just having a good athlete with good publicity and they can spend more than the purely ultra ones. 
Yeah, so that's a great question. So, you know, I'll, I'll speak, you know, just based on my experience having worked at Nike and obviously Camille is a Nike athlete, is that, you know, let's be honest. I mean, Nike could outbid anyone for any athlete that they wanted to. So, you know, in the ultra space or in any space in general, because they just have so much money. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, if you look at, you know, if you look at how many ultra shoes, if you will, that Nike sells every year compared to like, let's even say an ultra Mm. Or Hoka, you know, their ultras business, maybe not, but Hoka's for sure is bigger in the in the ultra distance world than Nike's. Mm. So, you know, so they're willing, Hoka's willing to kind of spend more to, you know, to drive that business and Nike might be willing to spend, but they're both fairly comparable, meaning that if Nike wants an athlete, you know, they're going to spend the m- amount of money it takes to get that athlete. So I would guess to answer your question in a very simple way. They both kind of pay comparably and they both pay, you know, very similar for bonuses. Um, one of the benefits, I mean, some brands, just so you know, they'll, they, they need to know what their exposure is to bonuses. So they'll cap mm. out athletes bonuses, making up an arbitrary number, but maybe, you know, 10,000 or $15,000 a year, they want to cap bonuses. There are some footwear companies that, you know, had, they have such deep resources and I won't mm. name what are, but I think you guys know who they are. They don't have to cap bonuses because they actually, you know, they want athletes to keep running and run as much as they want because the more that they win, the more exposure the brand gets. So they'll never cap bonuses because they want to encourage people to race and they don't have any kind of financial, you know, downside or exposure. So I don't, you, know, I don't know if you, I don't know if you can like tell me this in terms of because it might differ so much, but it's just really interesting to find out what what are the kind of responsibilities that that brands expect of um, of, mm. of their athletes. What 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 is there is there kind of like a standard in terms of what they expect of them, or what they have to do in performance of a of, of likes or one of those top tier contracts. Yeah, absolutely. So there is, I mean, they're, they're fairly standard among brands, but it's everything from besides obviously wearing the apparel and footwear, it's, you know, a certain amount of tweets or, you know, Instagram posts every month. So it's generally, it's not, you know, it's not overburdensome because, you know, brands realize that the more commercial an athlete is maybe the less authentic it seems. And so they're asking them typically to, you know, to post anywhere from two to four times a month you know, to tag the brand in a post, et cetera, et cetera. They also ask for appearances. So that could be at a sales meeting. It could be at a new retail store opening. So not more than a couple a year. Um, they ask them to be available to the media, like for you, for example, to do interviews. Um, you know, that that's, you know, important. So they ask for, you know, a few interviews a year um, at their request. And, um, and that's pretty much it. So it's it's not you know overly burdensome, and it and it, it tends to be organic because athletes like to do these things anyway. Yeah, and it's and it, does that it does that differ between say ultra ultra running and other um, other types of sports, or is that kind of normal for more sports? Because I think with something like ultras, um, it's kind of quite a uh, it's quite unique in the in the sense that um you know it it, yeah. it doesn't have quite the same exposure in, in you know in the way that all the other um a lot of other mm-hmm. sports do in terms of you know television and, and everything else and so like there was really interesting you were saying there that it needs to feel a bit more authentic and a bit more organic in the way that they talk to the audience just because it kind of seems ultra running seems to have that kind of audience yeah well, that's a great question. You know, so having signed a ton of kind of track and field athletes, so everything from, you know, throwers to sprinters, et cetera, et cetera, the only real difference is that there's competition clauses so that athletes have to run a certain amount of races per year. Mm. And there are also injury clauses, you guys know. So, I mean, if, if you go, if you're on if you're injured and you can't run for, call it, compete for six months, you know, footwear companies have the ability to 
you know, reduce your contract. And that's true, whether it be an ultra athlete or, you know, or a track athlete, for example. So the only requirement is typically track and field contracts, you know, demand, if you will, that an athlete run more races just because, you know, it's a lot easier to run 10, 1500 meter races in yeah, a year than yeah. it is to run 10 ultras. They just know. So mostly the requirement for ultra athletes is, you know, racing once every six months. And clearly most people do more than that, but that's it's, So it, the only real differentiation is the amount of times they ask you to race. Right. Okay. And just, sorry, David, just one more thing I just wanted to add to that, just because it was something that came up quite recently. What about, um, um, clauses around um pregnancy because there was that big mm. um uh, discussion um and a bit of a controversy about um right. you know the fact that a lot of um brands Alison will, felix isn't it yeah actually ditch yeah. ditch their athletes when when they get pregnant is, is that something that you have to challenge or you you have to build into into the, the negotiations or, or is that something that's come up for for you at all yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, obviously, we know, you know, that was Nike and their pregnancy clause. And yeah, I'm pretty familiar with the, that because those those clauses existed when I worked for Nike as well. Um, there, I have never, ever, even with Camille's contract, and Camille's been an athlete with Nike for three years, um, I have never seen a pregnancy clause in their contracts. I mean, men and women have, you know, basically equal contracts in my eyes. So I think Nike eliminated that a long time ago. Um, well, it may have been... I guess the issue is, I don't think it was explicitly put in there about pregnancy, but as you say, if you're not able to race for, yeah. and if you're pregnant, you're realistically, it's going to be nine months at least out of thought for once you're, yeah, you've got a big enough baby to once you, how long it takes you to recover. So in that time, if you, if you, if your contract says you can't race, you know, is, is that something that people are now changing and do you think that is going to change so that there will almost be a a pregnancy clause where they'll say unless you're pregnant at which point we'll carry on paying you yeah so a couple thoughts there so that's a great question you know camille was injured for you know for quite a while when she was with nike i think she was out for six seven eight months and you know not one time did nike ever bring up the injury issue with me or even talk about reducing her or suspending her contract or whatever so Mm. you know so i think like I think that, you know, what's in the contract, frankly, and what they enforce can be two completely different things. As you guys know, I mean, Amelia Boone, and this is very public knowledge, you know, has acknowledged her eating, you know, disorder problem. And and in fact, you know, has been treated for it. And Ultra, you know, has never, ever once like, I mean, they've been nothing but supportive. And they actually probably, you know, are are not probably because I know this, I think they're really you know, I guess happy, if you will, that she came out and acknowledged what is this, you know, a a real issue among both, you know, certainly women, but even, you know, some, in some cases, men, you know, for a long time. And I think they probably got more PR value, if you will, out of her acknowledging that and and dealing with a real serious issue than if she had been running. So it's like, you know, I think people in today's day and age are are incredibly practical and, and they, you know, they've never, like I mentioned, ever talked about reducing anyone's contract because of that. And do you think these sponsorships now and, and the fact that because they are life changing amounts, realistically, um, is it forcing athletes to change what they would do, like which races they're they're taking? Are we seeing more athletes converge onto these bigger name races because they need to for the sponsors? And, and it, do you think that's shaping the race community? So great question. I don't think. What I know is not happening is these athletes aren't racing anymore 
you know, than they normally would to pursue money. So that's one of the things about, you know, me kind of getting this board and getting, you know, a base, you know, a good base contract for them. They're not, they're not pushed to pursue the dollar. But what I have noticed is, you know, and I, I, I actually want this for my athletes as well is if they're looking at running, you know, some, I don't know, call it, you know, David's local home 50 K you know, I'm like, uh, why don't you do a 50 K that actually pays you money rather than run some race that doesn't, ha- it isn't in a bonus schedule. It doesn't pay you anything, you know? Mm. So it might be more competitive, but like, if you're going to go that far and race that far, you might as well do something that might have a financial impact to you. So they, you know, they think that way I push them that way, you know, and, and frankly, in, in all candor, I mean, I make 15% of, you know, of all of my athletes contracts, it's very standard, um, in the industry for track and field and, and running. Mm. So, you know, so, but I don't have a huge vested interest. Like my, my primary job, as you know, is a CEO of a neuroscience company in San Francisco. So while I'm passionate about running, you know, and I love helping people and getting, you know, these beautiful messages back from people saying, Hey, thank you very much. You know, you changed my life by negotiating these deals for me. You know, it doesn't, whether or not I get a check for a thousand or 1250 bucks, it, it doesn't change my life. Um, so I just, I want them to pursue, you know, things that pay them. Cause you know, an additional 5,000 bucks for one of my athletes is, is significant. Um, so anyway, I don't know if that answered your question, but, um, they're just being more deliberate in what they're racing, uh, than they may have been otherwise. Mm. And, and do you think, cause one of the controversies I was reading, well, not really controversies, one of the quite an interesting view piece that I read to do with UTMB is that, Partly one of the issues with trying to become a professional ultra runner is that something like UTMB, the prize money is so small when you think about how much money they're making as a brand. And it, it isn't enough money to sustain athletes. It, what should, do you think we should be expecting our races to, to actually give enough prize money to sustain the athletes? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, look, there. I think so for sure. I mean, the footwear companies are coming in to sponsor a Western, in this case, Hoka coming up or UTMB or whatever. They're paying a hell of a lot of money for a sponsorship fee. So I'm talking, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars or more to sponsor an ultra race. And sure, I understand the costs of, of putting on a race, but a lot of those costs are, you know, basically absorbed by athletes who are, you know, paying to enter and it's, you know, obviously and, and all of that type of stuff. So I think, you know, I think a lot of the entry fees pay for the cost of running a race and the money that footwork companies come in should be, you know, given back to the athletes in the form of either everything from appearance fees. Cause you know, track and field has huge appearance fees. Mm. You know I mean? When you look at, you know, is Usain Bolt, for example, when he steps on the line in Monaco to run a hundred, he is not towing the line for less than $250,000 just to run a hundred meters. And then there's prize money on top of it. So like, I think a lot of this, this money that's supplemental money that's coming in should be given to athletes in the form of a appearance fees and B, you know, obviously prize money, deep prize money. And I don't think that's happening to the extent that it should. Because are, are there any races that do appearance fees? Not to my knowledge. And it's odd because as I mentioned in other sports, it's, it's commonplace for sure. Uh, just not, uh, not in, not in ultra distance. And um, and where do you see the the kind of the sport going from from what you've seen? I mean, it has has it been dramatically changing financially in the last few years to support enough uh, runners? And do you think we're going to see a rise of a another tier of you know fifty hundred professional ultra runners in America, or is are we reaching a cap? 
Yeah, so a good, great question. I think look, I think more and more, like the athletes that I work with, like Camille didn't have a footwear deal before I got her a footwear contract. And Jim Walmsley didn't have a footwear deal before I got him a contract. So I think, you know, I think this sport is becoming more professionalized. Like I hope other agents come into this business besides me. I mean, I get calls of, to represent people all the time and I don't have the bandwidth to take on any new athletes. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, that even though I just took on Sabrina Stanley not long ago, it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, it sounds selfish, but I make exceptions for people that, you know, I think I can get deals for. And if you're, you know, if you're ranked 10th in the world or 12th of the world or whatever, it's really hard to get a deal. So what I'm hoping happens is that there's new footwear brands that are emerging all the time. I mean, if you looked at, you guys are familiar with Kraft out of Sweden, and I think really, really highly of Kraft. You know, they now got into they're getting into, uh, you know, obviously obstacle course racing shoes, OCR stuff, but they're also getting into running shoes. And as brands like that kind of emerge and expand into running footwear, there is more of an opportunity for more players in the market, hence more deals. So I almost see that being one way to deepen the the pot and the pool and, and, and to pay more athletes money is just other players coming into the space. And actually, in terms of, of sports, Ultra running is quite good for sponsors in in that there is a lot of potential kit that can have a dramatic impact on a race like UTMB or, you know, a multi-day ultra or, um, you know, a hundred miler. And so there, there are a lot of products out there for people to buy. And hopefully that means there should be quite a lot of money being pumped into the sport to then be able to support its athletes. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Look, there's everything from, you know, kind of like sunglasses to hydration packs to to nutrition. I'm talking not only like, you know, not only like liquid, but also, you know, uh, kind of gels and goos, which can be separate mm. categories for sponsorship. There's clearly footwear. There's sometimes there's sock opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. So you're right. It's really, really deep. And I think the beauty of Ultra is it's getting more coverage. Like if you watch you know, any of the live feeds now, whether they be on Iron Far or whatever you happen to, to follow, or even the race specific feeds, you know, these athletes are out there, as you mentioned, for 18 hours, 24 hours, whatever it is, there's a lot of exposure that you don't get if someone's, you know, compared to someone running at 800 meters on the track, mm. right? So, I mean, I'm hoping for the day that, and I, this doesn't happen in the US, you can tell me if it happens in the, in the UK, but I mean, I don't know if UTMB is ever televised or there's highlights or whatever. It, like I said, it doesn't happen here. But I, I hope for the day that the sport becomes mainstream enough that people actually want to watch, if not, you know, the whole broadcast, maybe just, a, you know, an hour of highlights, which would be really cool for the sport and, and the athletes. Yeah. And hopefully with drone technology progressing at the rate it does, that it will actually be quite achievable without being too expensive as well. Right. Exactly. Yep. So I hope, I hope for that day, that would be pretty awesome for everyone involved. Yeah. Well, um, we're, uh, we'll be waiting for the call for, uh, for when you're going to represent bad boy running to his millions. So, uh... <laughs> <All right. laughs> hey, don't don't oh. call me. I'll call you. But hey, seriously, <laughs> yeah. The thing is, the great thing is we, we're not just limited to, um, running equipment. We can sell, <laughs> sell crates of beer. We can sell pizza. We get you. The thing is where we don't quite have like the pull of maybe some of the other things. It's the breadth of stuff that we can sell and yeah. get away with it. I think that, that we're we, impressed by. And we're not yeah. limited by morals and, and things like that. So 
You know. The guys, the problem is, I mean, you you guys have a podcast. We need something. You got to. You guys are handsome, handsome gents. You know, you got to show your pictures out there. You can't just do it on your voice alone. No, no, he's, he's saying we've got terrible voices, JD, which is he's, he's no. point. <laughs> got a point. What's, the Beavers and Butthead of podcasting. Yeah, what's the old joke? You got You got a face made for radio. <laughs> Very much so. Very much so. Well, um, yeah. Any other questions, JD, that you want to cover? Yeah, the final thing really was just um, I wanted to ask you about um, uh, social media and social media influencers um, because there there's a you know there's like obviously a growing trend of uh, um, influencers people who aren't necessarily particularly uh, you know the best at a sport um, but able to to get um, sponsorship or ambassadorship and uh, and, and and you know actually attract a lot of uh, attention from sponsors but that's purely around you know the way that they represent themselves and the fact that they are so social media savvy which i imagine that you know previously ultra runners were kind of shy kind of people who have mm. to kind of learn to do social media whereas you've got mm. this whole like swathe of people who who you know represent what they do really really well even though they might not you know be be uh, you know the top of the game and everything has that filtered into anything that you've you've seen as well in you know in terms of the type of people approaching you or anything like that yeah, it's interesting. That's a great question. So yeah, there's people like, you know, I don't know if you guys know like Ali on the Run or you know who's a runner or um, Iron Will Jill who's a triathlete in Texas. I mean, I you know they're they're amazing. I mean, they've got probably a couple hundred thousand plus followers each, but they're like they're just I would call I don't hate to they would probably kill me for this, but just normal athletes who I don't even know how I should ask, but how they built this huge following just by posting like normal stuff, if you will. They're not elites. Mm. They're not followed by elites. They're followed by kind of mainstream America. And I think it's because it's a little bit, they're, they're very authentic. Um, they're very real. They're people that, you know, people can relate to and they've just built a huge following. They have a ton of sponsors. They built a huge following on that. So, you know, I find it really fascinating and I've never really probed how they built their following, but it's like, it's a real following. It's not as if they're buying followers, um, so I haven't talked to any of them about repping them or being their agents. Maybe they're just getting so much exposure that I just never thought about, you know, reaching out. Um, but yeah, I, I've been really impressed and I, I hope people like that just make, you know, ultra distance running or even triathlon just feel like it's more accessible to the general public to get more people interested and in, in get this groundswell, um, to get more people into our sports. So I, you know, I hope that's happening, but it's, it's been really cool. And I don't really have a theory on, Besides authenticity of why it's really working, and it, from, from you know, looking at it from a brand perspective, it, it, it I, you know, when you were when you were working in those brands, and everything was there, or you know, I don't know, you know, how long ago it was you were working with those brands, but is there any um, appetite from them to work with those people? Like, is there any likelihood that that you know, bigger brands will look at those type of people as as kind of the future for um, for sponsorship because they can bring that that size audience or is it still very much focused on it's all about the elites it's all about your performance in a race that's really going to drive um whether, whether you end up with a deal or not yeah no that's a great question so no i left i left hoka where i was the vp of marketing a little over four years ago four and a half years ago and at the time you know the brand was you know we were the fastest growing running shoe of all time but the brand was only about six not only but it was about 65 million dollars when i left and we we're very, I would say, kind of, I don't know if you want to say true to the sport, but we we're very performance driven yeah. in terms of the athletes we signed. So we didn't, we never signed any influencers. 
um, at all. Now I, you know, we just only sign elites. Um, and I know the brand has taken a turn since then and they're, they're, you know, more mainstream and they do sponsor people like iron will Jill and maybe even Allie on the run, but they've taken a different direction since the time I left. Um, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but you know, I do think, uh, you know, I, they've you know changed their performance edge slightly. I think to become more mainstream. Right. Okay. That's really interesting. And yeah. do you? Th- I mean, I I think it'll probably happen. But how long do you think it will take before people like Iron Will Jill are earning more money than the professional people of their sport? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know what will, will makes- that not happen. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it could happen mostly because since she is more mainstream, I think she has a top opportunity to go after these, what I mentioned to you guys as these non-endemic sponsors. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of your value or a lot of what perceived value from footwear companies, or I should say any company is how many Instagram followers that you have. And when you've got a few hundred thousand, you become, you know, way more mass appeal than, than just, you know, specifically in your sport. And people are willing to pay for that. So people like Jill can go out and get, you know, these non-endemic sponsors and probably enough of them to add up to to make more, you know, as much as, you know, some of the best ultra distance runners in the world. So I think if she's not doing it now, I think that levels up pretty quickly, guys. And I see an opportunity for, you know, them to make on par, um, you know, with each other. Mm. Interesting, because that's something we discussed previously with Holly. It was whether it's essentially going to be taking the money that would be propping up the athletes in our um in our community and giving that instead to influencers which could be good for encouraging more people into the sport but might mean that there are fewer people at the top end who can afford to compete professionally and therefore you know the different impact of a growing sport that has a a lower um top end because they can't dedicate themselves to it yeah you know, it depends. I think, you know, for a lot of what I'm doing with my people and like people like Amelia Boone, who's, you know, has a really big following and obviously she's really popular in the obstacle course racing world. And now, you know, has kind of, you know, shifted her focus to ultra distance running. You know, she, as you guys probably know, I mean, she's full time, you know, corporate counsel at Apple um, here in the Bay Area. So she's so busy and obviously her career is, you know, important to her and i don't know how much money she makes but clearly it's corporate counsel at apple she's doing well Mm. you know she she turns down sponsors you know left and right guys mostly because she doesn't ever want to do disservice to a brand by not having the bandwidth to you know promote them properly and do that so there's a certain threshold and i i can't mention it but she will not do a deal under a certain amount of money just because it's really not worth her time and she feels like she can't represent the brand in the way that she wants so Hopefully that money that's out there, if you will, like let's pretend the deals that she's turned down and they've been numerous that they can go to other people as well. So I, I don't think I hope it's not a zero sum game. And I think, you know, as, as the sport grows, which I know it's doing, that there's you know more money to go around to all of these different levels of people that you're you know referencing. Yeah, that, like I like I said before, you know, we will never challenge those elites. So, you know. <laughs> pizza, pizza brands, uh, delivery brands, beer brands, we're absolutely we're we're absolutely yeah we'll we'll never cannibalize it morning after pill <laughs> right exactly yeah all useful all all stuff that you know, you could attach to uh to us perfect right. 
Okay, I'll, I'll, yeah, duly noted. We'll take that conversation uh, off. <laughs> we'll, take, we'll, we'll put that conversation in the bin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you yep. so much for coming on, Mark. We've, I Brilliant. think, you're our first genuine double guest, which um, is kudos to you in many, well, in every way. So, uh, thank you for firstly the Halo products and also for um, for that insight into how sports agents work in the ultra running community. Well, David, Jody, really, thank you. I've, I've followed you guys for quite some time and obviously know Camille's been on a couple of times. So I'm a big fan of the the podcast and really, really appreciate you taking the time and, and uh, you know, allowing me to share a little bit of my experience with your uh, your listeners. Our pleasure. All the best, Mark. Okay. Thanks again. Cheers. Okay, thanks. Take care, guys. Oh, that was interesting. Yeah, I mean essentially two guests that with two interesting topics and so much experience and stories and but as one wow amazing um i was about to say to you he's not our first double guest but i can't remember who is it andrew Steele? oh yes andrew Steele, of but, course but, but this is the interesting thing isn't it isn't it funny that like previous um uh, professional athletes find an application in science and then go on to do something like that. That's that's the, the that's the interesting thing. And so yeah. it's it's very very similar in the way that that's that's happened. But the fact is that he's come from the the big brands as well. So he's got that real insight into how into how brands think. And what he was just saying there, the last kind of point he was making about you know four years ago when he was like VP of marketing at Hoka, you know, like I suppose the influencer thing, like only four years ago, like the influencer yeah. thing wasn't that big. Was it like how quickly that has changed? Well, it's almost because like you, it started a bit on Twitter. There were the a few the few people you'd hear yeah. of, but not really runners. But yeah, before Instagram took off, you couldn't really be massive on Facebook unless you were an established athlete with a page. And even then, like a, a Facebook page, do, do people even still use that? that no, much? The, only reason, the only reason you have a Facebook page is if you're advertising really because it does there's no organic reach is that you know yeah thing you really have organic reach on now is uh, is instagram and yeah. so and, and that's it and that's really like rise of the influences is instagram isn't it which is stupid like facebook have essentially killed the purpose of facebook for athletes um and for you know individuals in in that respect of promoting themselves but yeah um it's amazing that he's he's essentially he is the market for Ultra running sports journalists. Sorry, <laughs> oh, sorry sports, uh, not sports, uh, ultra running sports agents. Imagine if you were an agent for sports journalists in running. <laughs> that would be, that would be really rubbish. That'd I mean, if you're size, re- it? 50% represent- of nothing. Is. <laughs> no, 50% of some free kit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've cut off this corner of an, of an A6 top for you. Can I have one shot, fifth- please, from that packet? <laughs> God, that would be visual, wouldn't it? So yeah, all right. So let's do right, this, this. We've got two things to talk about there. So we've got the um, let's talk about um, the headset, which um, I think sounds brilliant. Um, well, it's it's one of those products that it's. I mean, if you think even now with the Nike trainer, people in um, my running clubs WhatsApp group refuse to believe that it's anything other than placebo effect and marketing they just refuse to believe that that and it's because people don't want to have to accept that they're losing out because they're not going to pay the money but this is even harder to grasp and to believe is going to be that useful until you try it 
Yeah, the thing is, I, I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because um, it's if you if you know that it's come that a lot of this technology has come from um, implanted technology, because a lot I think a lot of people think the whole wearable market is a bit of a gimmick um, because they because the, the right. So the main issue with the wearable market is that people think about tens machines. Whenever you think about anything that has some any sort of electro current, you always think about this tens machines where you sit eating your KFC with, <laughs> with that machine that's going to give you some abs while you're watching X Factor. Or you're electrocuted yeah. to death. You're electrocuted, yeah. yeah. There's, like, there's literally not a current that is going to get you some abs. <laughs> like, but that's the thing. That's what people think about. Anything to do with like um, bioelectric medicine, um, that's what they think about. But if you actually look into, into this, um, then you'll see that you know, a lot of it comes from uh, implanted technology, which has been, you know, like you're saying, used for 30 years. Mm. Yet the difficulty who is and, and you know some of it so for example um, in some cases some of that uh, some of that like implanted technology is like twenty thirty thousand pounds like thirty thousand dollar technology and it costs a lot about it with, with single usage so actually um, democratizing it by turning it into 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 wearable technology is is the next step and make it so so actually to be able to do something like that for as low as three hundred ninety nine dollars is actually incredible. But the problem yeah. is all people see is $399 rather than thinking, you know, this would have cost $7,000, you know, uh, four years ago. And so it's really, it's, it, I suppose it's anchoring it, isn't it? It's anchoring, it's like mm. classic pricing strategy here. If you anchor it to the $7,000 that, you know, it would have cost if it was implanted, then $399 is, is, is nothing. Whereas if you look at the $50 thing you can get in Argus um, that uh, doesn't do anything, then you think, well, that's a $399 dollar thing that doesn't do anything so it i it, i suppose it it's going to be one of those things where i suppose i don't know actually i don't know i don't know what's going to happen it, 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 yeah it, i suppose it's just more and more um adoption is going to come as as people find they've got results but also with i mean the way the placebo effect works they've shown that you know a white pill is different in the placebo effect to a blue pill and an injection is a better placebo effect than a pill. And so the placebo effect of having to have headphones on for 20 minutes before you can even use them properly while it's you're getting a, a sensation of like warmth and electricity directly into your brain. I mean, could there be a bigger placebo effect possible? I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't work because I'm, I'm sure, well, we'll find out, but it's, it, apparently it does. But even the placebo effect from that is going to be so massive that that's going to be worth it alone. Well, isn't, that, isn't the whole idea that it's headphones is the fact that it's already fitting in with the behaviour of athletes when they go into it anyway, so that it doesn't fit. So actually, it's really... It's really clever, actually, because if you had anything different, if you had like one of those helmets like Cerebro from from X-Men and you had to wear that 20 minutes before performing, <laughs> no, they might be focused, but they don't want to look like an absolute bell end. Do yeah. they sat there with Cerebro on their head? But if they're walking around with what looks like a pair of headphones and it's and it's doing the same thing, then you're not going to have that. I'm sure they don't get embarrassed and things like that, but. It is. I think it does make a difference if it already fits into your behaviour because it's still a set of headphones. It's still a set of headphones, isn't it? Was and it wasn't Cerebro one of the X Men? Cerebro was the thing. Was the thing that um, uh, Professor Xavier wore. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, is that what it's called? 
Cerebro, yeah. It is, so they've actually used that. Amazing. No, that's no, good. no, no, no. I just made that up. I was just, I was just <laughs> that's like Cerebro. <laughs> no, I was just referencing X-Men. Yeah, it does It does seem similar to that. Um, yeah, and the... I mean, it, the would be good. it would be good if some, a malfunction happened and you could connect with all other ultra runners. <laughs> <laughs> Just hear, just hear they're doing the boring thoughts <laughs> of the bo- yeah, boring. Uh, oh, I'm just going to run to the next tree and then I'm going to give up. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to run to the next gate and then I'll give up. Oh, I'm just going to walk for two minutes. Because, <laughs> yeah, that would be the worry if they could suddenly, you know, Chinese hackers could hack in directly into your brain. And this is the next level of uh, mind control. I was going to say, what, are, what, what do the Russians make of this? What are they going to do to... to yeah to go one better than this and also what do you think the music is is it just montage music for 20 minutes just on loop it's it's still you can still use it as a pair of headphones that i I thought you just look as a normal pair of headphones i thought it was like special (laughs) special montage i had the tiger on repeat music no i think you just use it as special headphones and it and it and it operates while you're doing that oh okay so you've got to find, you, but not more than 20 minutes, you've got to find a, a, a piece of music that, or so a few pieces of music that hit 20 minutes exactly. So, I mean, that's, so that's, that's three um, November rains. <laughs> that's one November rain. One November rain, like one dark, <laughs> half a dark side of the moon. <laughs> I'm trying to think of any other route. There aren't that many. The, if you've ever sung karaoke and chosen American Pie, it feels like 20 minutes. Oh, it's, it's about eight yeah. verses. So it's probably one American pie. Yeah, absolutely. But so, um, yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, and and, and think... actually, this is the first time when we've we've asked questions from do-batters that over 50% of the questions have been really in-depth and serious. And um, I, I think we got to the gist of most of them. But if you... Listeners, if you have a look on the in the group, and there was a, a couple of people who read the whole paper because they were so intrigued by it, which is amazing. Yeah, I know. And I, this, do you know what the thing is? Our enthusiasm for this sounds like it's one of these setups for a new uh, sponsorship promotion. <laughs> but we generally, we generally haven't been setting this up. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't got kickback or anything. We're not or... Going, I know. Let's just try it. Right, we we managed to sell the um um you know the, what's it called the buzzy the beer, uh, beer fifty two. So we, we sell the beer. We managed to sell the um the buzzy rolls, uh, buzzy rollers. <laughs> buzzy uh, rolls. Uh, is that what they call Buzzy rollers. And now, and now we're going to try and sell a piece of uh you know most expensive headphones that um, you can ever buy that are going to change your money let's just see how high we can get the price points <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly we're selling cards next on commission <laughs> yeah this, the rob young this is the rob young uh, attempt to, yeah just drive it <laughs> but um but his i mean his marketing his so his um his, his role as an agent it almost sounds as if he's just very good at understanding uh, negotiations and contracts and he's um they kind of just come to him at the at the pivotal moments as opposed to because part of me thought the agents there phoning up saying hey do you want to take this person as a speaker or but it seems like it's it's quite um it, it it's not it doesn't need to be that hand-on because in essence as an ultra runner you've probably only got one or two or three times in your three or four or five years where you genuinely need an agent to make the massive difference of that big contract 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love the idea of they having to do personal appearances. I'm like, for what? Like, what are they going to go along to? <laughs> really? I mean, like, who, like, most people just like, well, I feel like it's just like, yeah, they might come along to a big sales meeting or, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, who's going to be kind of, oh, wow, I can't be great to get an ultra runner who like no one knows who they are along to something because even that's Killian, like how many people exactly. know Killian who aren't like outside of ultra runners do outside of running i don't know yeah exactly i think yeah he's still like someone like dean canazes is still the, the the one that people most think about when when they think about um uh, ultra running yeah absolutely um so but maybe there's store openings of running shops or things that <laughs> but you know, camille's got to pop along to or... in america in america it's just a different scale isn't it because like, he was when he was talking oh when i was at hoka you know we were only a 65 million dollar company <laughs> jesus christ that's like, isn't that isn't that what the whole of the uk's worth or something i know <laughs> that's but, uh that's 60 million times caffeine bullet size <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is yeah i suppose you know it, it um it can you know it, i don't know it works on a different level in america isn't it there's just there's yeah. just um, things that things are bigger and more impressive um, yeah and, and i don't know about utm yeah about what you said about utmb though the fact that you know the money doesn't filter back to the to mm. the athletes yeah and 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 the in europe is is it as big as america i, I don't know the ultra running community in the ultra, but I don't know if say you were as good as Camille, but you were British. I don't know if you could get a similar amount of money because I don't think French people care about English runners or English runners care about French runners or vice versa. No. Um, in the same way, so actually, I think europeans you only really are as big as the country you're based in other than killian somehow has managed to go global but outside of that it seems to be very localized and so i I can't see there being someone who could get you know even if the world's best ultra runner say steve wade turned around and suddenly won comrades and was going out to western state and podiuming would he be able to earn as much as an American athlete who did the same. I don't think so. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's the thing. It doesn't, it just doesn't work in that way with the market. The European market is, is really different in the sense that like, like you said, Killian is the only, only one who really sort of has that global appeal. Yeah. And, and and the whole, um, the, the reach you can now get with things like Instagram, I still think it's similar where, you know, if you're, if you're big on Instagram in America, you've got 350 million people who potentially will follow you. You might get more people in Europe following the Brits or vice versa, but it's, it's going to be massively reduced um, of that. Well, how many people are in, in, in Europe? 300 million, 250? Uh, yeah, but let's say 300. I think the, the reach you'd be able to manage with a similar profile would be far, far less. Um, yeah. So, which is, I guess, frustrating in some ways because it, it means you know, America, who probably are going to be the best funded anyway and are likely to have the, some of the best athletes in the world because of their collegiate system, because of their access to amazing running terrain and just amazing equipment. Um, they're 
in the future going to be further advantaged and so it'd be interesting to see whether things like i mean they absolutely smash the 24 hour team but whether you know in ultra running the americans take over yeah yeah well two two interesting um very different interviews there do balance what do you think do you do you think it's this this technology is good technology do you think i mean the good thing is it can help with rehab which i think is, is fantastic and it can I, help with like yeah. training and, and learning and, and, and adaptation which is, is surely a good thing but do you think it's at the do you, do you think there should come a point in sport where actually we say anything that's more expensive than x shouldn't be allowed because it's it's not fair yeah i do the thing is i do think that's a weird one because it's mm. like not as if they go you know you have there's just some sports that or, or some levels in sport that you're just gonna have an advantage because you've got more funding from that mm. perspective um yeah it's a difficult one um but then you know i don't know that's the thing about running it has been the great leveler isn't it it has been you know Mm. even with the people with all the greatest technology and the greatest mm. you know trainers and things like that essentially and i mean trainers in the you know coaches sense um can still be undone by someone having an incredible race yeah yeah but and and actually i think ultra is more of a leveler than than track and, and the shorter yeah, distances absolutely. but even a you know it has been a leveler in that it hasn't been if you look at some sports then it is countries of money that do well, but running isn't that. It is more in ultra running just because the countries that are good at marathons and half marathons don't do ultras. But if Kenyans suddenly decided they're going to bother doing ultras, there wouldn't be any podiums for any Europeans or Americans, that's for sure. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But um, yeah, what do you think, do batters? Um, what do you think about the? Do you think there's going to be more professional athletes in the future? Do you think it's you know we, sp- we spoke to Mike Wardian, and uh, he's he's full time, Camille's full time. You know, there's a lot of very high profile ultra runners who are full time. Do you think it is a good thing to have more athletes who can purely dedicate themselves to the sport, or do you think it almost is un- is unnecessary and and actually you can have you, there is enough time and you can have enough focus to to do it with jobs? Um, yeah, you know, what's your what are your thoughts on this? I love I love the idea of being counsel for Apple and, <laughs> <laughs> and and being an ultra. Do you know what that makes perfect sense? Three, you know, how many how many people are lawyers or do- we've talked to it How many people are lawyers or doctors? for like big huge huge organizations and then literally need to need to punish themselves by doing ultras at, at the weekend and stuff like that <laughs> it, it, it makes perfect sense what, what i love what i love about this interview uh, this double interview as well is that we just glossed over his his his, his running <laughs> which sounded probably one of the most impressive backgrounds of anyone we've ever had on the program <laughs> yeah he's hey guys before just i just want to mention i've been to the olympics and i blah blah, blah and they're like okay anyway this product, this product. <laughs> <laughs> i know i just like the way we just kind of glossed over it because he sounds he sounds incredible like it's just an incredible runner with it i think his whole like history has been incredible which is why the yeah. you know, why he's in the position that he's in at the moment uh, you know like just at the right time of uh, you know having come out of those brands, having a time where ultra running's at it, you know, lifting itself up um, and then also getting involved with, with, with that technology as well. I think it's just, you know, one of those things that comes together at the right time. And, and we could have even, we could have done a whole episode just interviewing him on the rise of hawkers 
and you know how yeah. that's gone and the rise of trainers in ultra running and you know what it was like to the difference between nike and reebok and in fact should we should we just Let's spend the next year call me call me i'm sure not busy in between uh, <laughs> running a technology company managing ultra athletes <laughs> i mean he's going to be busy just deleting the emails from us saying hey hey where's our contract <laughs> <laughs> bring us in the big bucks <laughs> but um do bad if you if you enjoy this episode then as as jd mentioned and uh, the andrew Steele one's fantastic episode he was a olympic athlete for gb 400 meters running and he found out that afterwards he essentially was doing the wrong training and it was only through dna analysis that he realized that that's what cost him essentially his place at the london 2012 olympics um even though he got a bronze um in the the four by four four years before um that's quite a lot of fours in that say that phrase <laughs> well but anyway um yeah and he then goes on to talk about dna testing and uh and the the company he's working with now that is using that to, to help athletes so really really similar in some of the the ways in which they're using technology to to help with um with ultra running um we've mentioned mike warden he's a full-time athlete who is a, a badass ultra runner um that's a great episode any others you'd mention two well the two episodes of camille who is yeah. just a joy to listen to at all times who we're hopefully having back in the next few weeks anyway but uh yeah every time, every time, she, every time she breaks a record it's something amazing we have her back so she's literally gonna come on more times than pete reese that's how we motivate her like <laughs> camille sorry mate you ain't got a record yet come on come on <laughs> Um, yeah, any others you'd recommend, Jody? Um, I don't know. I think I'm spent with those recommendations. Yeah, we've done quite a few, but I mean, they're obviously all good. And you've hopefully heard from Mike some of the future athletes we're going to get on as well, because we've just uh, basically said, yeah, we'll try and get them all on. So uh, we'll be spacing them out every few weeks, but we've got a lot of badass American female ultra runners coming on in the next few months, hopefully. So uh, there we go. Well, thanks, Jody. Pleasure as always. Amazing, man. That was a good one. Absolutely. And if you like this episode, please do subscribe. Um, please, if you haven't yet, leave a review on iTunes. It makes a massive difference in how people perceive the podcast. And that really helps with getting good guests on. And uh, also, if you want to join the best running club on earth, Bad Boy Running Club is is out there. I don't know how you join it, but probably Google <laughs> it's like it's like barclay marathons you need to find someone who's already a member to tell you how to become a member or you just go to or you just go to the website club.badboyrunning.com perfect well that's just it guys and we'll see you next week i must admit i was a clone to be messing around but that doesn't mean that you have to leave town come back yes and give me one more try cause i love like this should i never ever die come back fuck you buddy <laughs> <laughs>